I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 18, Pope Calixtus I. Hooray! We're finally to him and his tombs and everything else he's done. Yay! So you did remember. That's good. Now I'm going to say right off the bat, when we first started talking about doing Pontifax, If you had asked me for examples of popes that would have a very interesting story to talk about, this would have been one of those ones I would have instantly mentioned. He is, he's got a story. He's got a lot of stuff for us to talk about. So we should not waste any time. We should jump right into it. Are you ready? Let's go. I'm excited. Okay. Like we had with last week with Zephyrinus, most of what we know about Calixtus comes from his enemies. Oh no. Mostly Hippolytus. The same guy. Yes. But also we have Tertullian and a little bit of Origen too. Oh, Tertullian's back. He's back and so is Origen and I've come to the conclusion that these early popes need more enemies that hate them. Because we have so much more information when the sources are being super We've had way more information on popes who have had fights with people, and it really benefits them in the long run. So, this is definitely, definitely the case with him. Pope Calixtus, or Callistus, or Callisto, depending on what source you use and how much they translate, was born in Rome. His father's name was Domitius. And according to the Liber Pontificalis, they lived in the district of Herbs Revenantium, which is on the other side of the Tiber from the heart of Rome, and was settled mostly by people who had come from Ravenna, hence the name Revenantium. If you're looking at modern-day Rome, it's where the neighborhood of Trastevere is now. And when I say that he lived in this area, what I mean is that Calixtus was a slave who lived in his master's house here. Oh, we got another slave. We have a slave pope. And we know that his master was called Carporphorus, who, from what we can tell, was also a Christian who was in relatively high standing in the imperial court, who either ran some sort of banking business or he was involved in church finances. Or both. Both have been suggested. We don't really know, but this dude has some money. And the reason that this is important that this dude has some money is that Carpophorus gave his slave Calixtus a very important and high-status position for his slave by putting him in charge of the funds collected by his master that were meant for alms for Christian widows and orphans. Oh, So, already, he's a slave, but he's a high-status slave with a high-responsibility job. What happens next is a little bit unclear. Either the bank that his master owned failed, and Calixtus gets blamed for it, or Calixtus loses all of the money that he's supposed to be in charge of somehow. Hippolytus tells us that he spent it all on his own pleasures. Oh, yeah, I'm sure that's what happened. This this is what we know. But what we know for sure is that when the money was gone, Calixtus skips town. And this doesn't go really, really well for him, and he gets apprehended around Portus, which is the harbor of Rome, so he didn't get very far. And the story about his arrest is that when they came for him... Calixtus jumped into the harbor to avoid being arrested, but that also didn't work out for him because apparently he can't swim and he needed to be rescued. (laughs) Captured, brought back into Rome for trial, and he would be sentenced to the pistrinum, which is a hand mill or some kind of treadmill, It's, it's somewhat unclear, used for grinding corn, so basically hard, demeaning physical labor. But it seems that Carpophorus is actually the one that's going to help secure Calixtus's release from this, potentially by convincing the magistrates that by releasing him, some of his creditors might actually be able 
to get their money back. So again, this seems to indicate rather than spending this money on himself, maybe Calixtus made a bad investment with the money or something. It doesn't seem likely that his slave uh, owner master dude would be coming to try and get him out of this punishment if there wasn't a reason for it. So either way, he is released, but now he has a ton of creditors that are breathing down his neck. Oh, that sounds awful. So what does Calixtus do next? Does he leave? Nope. You got another guess? Does he block their numbers on his phone? He goes and he gets into a fight with some Jews in a synagogue. That's the opposite. So, again, this situation is very unclear, and what happened depends on who you want to believe. Either he got into a dispute over money, he's either trying to, like, borrow it or collect money that had been lent to him, or he's trying to get some of these creditors off his back, or he just insulted them while they were at worship. Guess which one of these comes from Hippolytus? The insulted during worship. Exactly. Regardless of the reason, again, there was shouting and there is a fight, a physical fight in the synagogue, and Calixtus gets arrested again. And this time his slave master is having none of it and denounces him as an untrue Christian. And this time he's brought before a prefect called Fuscianus, who condemns him to the mines in Sardinia. This man is not off to a good start. No, I don't. <laughs> but it's been an adventure so far. We're only a couple minutes in. It has been a real big adventure. Like, I don't know if he did it on purpose or if, like, he was just, like, in, like, a Tim situation where he was just too honest. I want to believe that one. I don't know if he is as innocent and pure as Tim, but we we, <laughs> we will decide as we go. What happens next we covered in Victor's episode because Calixtus ends up on the list of names provided by Pope Victor for Marcia, who is the mistress of Emperor Commodus. And Commodus and Marcia then sent Bishop Hyacinthus to free the people in Sardinia that were on that list. And so Calixtus gets released from the mines. Now Hippolytus adds that at this time, Calixtus made the list through his own conniving, extortion, and bribery. That he wasn't actually on the original list at all, but when Hyacinthus showed up to free everybody, he threw himself at Hyacinthus's feet and begged for his release and offered him some money, and then he gets released, and Victor's very annoyed at him in the process. But the other sources, who are not Hippolytus, tell us that at the time of his release, Calixtus was in a really bad way, and he was so weak that he couldn't have made a journey back to Rome. He wouldn't have survived. So instead, he is sent to Antium to recover, and he is provided with a monthly pension from Victor for being a living confessor, which is someone who has suffered for Christ, but not unto martyrdom. So... It doesn't seem likely that Victor is annoyed at him for being free when he's giving him a pension to stay there and get better. Victor's not one to mince and be like, oh, yeah, you can stay here, but I hate you. He'd be like, you're excommunicated, leave. He, he really liked to do that. So, again, this is, we're casting a little bit of doubt on Hippolytus's version of these stories. So he's in Antium, and he's recovering, and he has a pension. And it's here in Antium that he is going to stay for nine or ten years, roughly, working as a confessor while on that pension. And I'm pretty sure we've mentioned Antium before, but just in case we haven't, it's in the Lazio region, which is just south of Rome. And which, by the way, again, Hippolytus tells us that the reason that Calixtus doesn't want to come back to Rome is he doesn't want to face dishonor or, you know, maybe he's just living really pretty, cushy on his pension. Take your pick. I mean, I would live on my pension if I was given a pension. Yeah, why wouldn't you? He's he's living a good life. He he clearly didn't have a good time in Rome. Why not? Why would you go back there? Well, he doesn't until 199 when Victor dies and Zephyrinus becomes pope. 
And as we will remember from last week, Zephyrinus decides to recall Calixtus from Antium to Rome to be his archdeacon and closest advisor. From being in the mines and then living on your own, this is a pretty steep climb up the ecclesiastical ladder for Calixtus. Now, one of his responsibilities, now that he's in really tight with the Pope, is that he's put in charge of the cemetery catacomb that the church had come into possession of along the Appian Way. Friar Don Miller, a priest and church historian, suggests that this might have actually been the first actual land owned officially by the church. I think you mentioned that last week. I can't remember my brain melted so bad. Well, and, and if we if we look at this, like, We'll address this quickly. Like, it's possible. We've talked about churches and basilicas that have been built and the the burial on Vatican Hill, obviously, but this is a little different than that. This is a substantial piece of land. It's about 15 hectares or 20 kilometers, and at its peak, the catacombs have five levels and would have held almost 500,000 bodies. And this is going to be the burial place for many, many popes, and it's going to have the chapel of the popes for the next 200 years, and this will include Pontian, Antares, Fabian, Lucius, and the popes we've already discussed, Anicetus and Soter. There are more. This is just a handful. And just as an aside, while we're talking about it, in my recent trip to Rome, I went to the catacombs. They are very, very extensive, and... If you go and you want to go visit them, I highly recommend it. It was really cool. You actually, when you go down, the first place you get to go is that burial chamber of the popes. So you walk like right into it. It's right there. And they claim that only nine popes have been buried there, but that's within that chapel of the popes. Okay. Yeah, the records say it's more like 16 if you count the ones who are buried other places, because within this catacombs it's there are a lot of family tomb kind of rooms off to the side we'll talk about them when we get to uh certain individuals but there's a lot of those there's a lot of just like in wall sepulcher type things so 500,000 people were buried there at one point that's a lot of bodies it's so so many bodies and it was it was a place that was full of christians at the time so Oh, and this is also where St. Cecilia is buried, so we're going to come back to her probably in the next episode, so bear that in mind. She's there too. There's a lot more we could say about the catacombs, but this kind of covers the details that we need to know for Calixtus, because it will be with the church for a while, and it'll have more impact after his life as an active cemetery. And I think it would make for a really interesting bonus episode because there's a lot of stories there. So we're going to move on. He's not even Pope yet. and We've had a lot to talk about, so we got to keep going. But we're not going to make him Pope quite yet because we also need to discuss this relationship with Pope Zephyrinus because we don't know how at all Calixtus and Zephyrinus actually knew each other before this point or why Zephyrinus thought that Calixtus would be a good advisor. Maybe he had gained a reputation as an insightful confessor during his, like, nine or ten years in Antium. Maybe they formed a bond. We really don't know. He can clearly math, so... Yeah! <laughs> well, maybe. He lost all the money. Maybe he maths really badly. But what we do know, and what, or at least what we have the sources telling us, is that Zephyrinus is ignorant and gullible and subject to bribery and uneducated in theology and potentially illiterate. So these are the same sources, of course, that are telling us that Calixtus is gaining and holding his influence over Zephyrinus and teaching him his brand of theology rather than church officials like Hippolytus thought should be happening. So, again, we have Hippolytus, who's the one saying that this relationship is purely because Zephyrinus is stupid and Calixtus is manipulating him. That's some rude stuff happening here. Yeah, he's he's kind of a jerk. I don't, I, yeah, there's more to come. But the reason that we need to keep this in mind is when we think of how we're going to score him for something like Papatum and Thallium, he could have been a puppet master this whole time. He could have been 
the power behind the papal hat before he was wearing his own papal hat. Or this could all be a dose of the haterade, so we don't have the whole church perspective on this. But either way, for now, Calixtus is getting blamed for Zephyrinus not taking a clear decision between Hippolytus's viewpoint and Cleomenes and Sibelius, who were the modalists that we discussed last week. And Calixtus is also being blamed for Zephyrinus allowing Natalius back into the church, who was the man who got sucked into the adoptionists with offers of pay, and then the angels whipped him all night. So apparently welcoming people back to the faith should have been a no-no, and it's all Calixtus's fault. And then Zephyrinus dies, and Calixtus becomes the next pope. Does he get voted in? Is it just... Because, oh, you're here and the hat is here, so now you're the Pope? Well, we have this in writing, actually. Friar Don Miller says that Calixtus was elected in the majority. Wow. Against the other candidate, Hippolytus. So can you guess what happens next? I guess someone just starts penning some angry notes. Well, Hippolytus freaks out, loses his refuses to recognize Calixtus as Pope, and then leaves the church with his followers, setting himself up as the first anti-Pope in the history of the church. Ah, uh, snap. We have arrived. We've made it. So if you're looking for our bonus episode for October on Patreon, it's gonna be about Hippolytus, so ding ding, we're there. This is an exciting moment. Things are happening in the church that are very, very dramatic. But before we can get into what Hippolytus is now doing as an anti-pope, I think we should first cover Calixtus's papacy so that we can deal with the ongoing criticisms in their context. We can't forget that we've been talking about heresy for over ten episodes now, and the church is dealing with really important questions of orthodoxy and heresy, and the church is going to come up against these ideas, and now they have this whole other new section of challengers under Hippolytus. And Calixtus is coming to the papacy at a time right after Victor, whose hardline approach led to mass chaos, and Zephyrinus, whose gentle tolerance really just pissed off all the rigorists in Hippolytus. So Calixtus has to decide what he wants to embrace. And it, it comes down to two things. Is he going to embrace rules or people? Oh, I don't Which way does he swing? Because I have no guess. You have no guess. Well, as the Encyclopedia of Catholic Saints puts it, Calixtus chose to trust God's mercy and love and open the doors. By choosing Christ's mission, he chose to spread gospel to all. Uh, you see, I should have, I should have just extrapolated data from him being like, you need to bring this guy back, it's not his fault. Right, exactly. I should have known. Well, I mean, this is a moment in the church where it's splitting in half, so who knows what's going on. <laughs> I didn't know, maybe he changed his mind or something, but I really should have known better. We're gonna ask this question again in a handful of episodes, and now you will have some backing. So, again, like, we can't forget that Calixtus had been the closest advisor to Zephyrinus, so he's gonna go steady on the course of Zephyrinus, the maintaining most of the same policies, but he's gonna take it to a new level because he's definitely a stronger personality than Zephyrinus. He goes and he implements widespread policies of reconciliation and welcoming people into the church, or even back into the church. If someone had left to schism, or they had started following heretics and they decided to come back, he welcomed them back without requiring penance or rebaptism. You know, he's pretty accepting. He also was allegedly the first pope to introduce the concept of absolution for all sins, including grave sins like adultery and murder, and that even a mortal sin wasn't enough to depose a bishop if they were confessing and doing penance. In this way, he's extending this idea of God's divine mercy 
unto any person who was confessing their sin. And this is pretty substantial in the face of the church. We have Tertullian who writes, I hear that an edict has been published, and a preemptory one, that Bishop of Bishops, which means the Pontifex Maximus, proclaims, I remit the crimes of adultery and fornication to those who have done penance. It reads like a blog. <laughs> a little bit. I heard today. Well, he's a little bit more salty as we go on, but... Calixtus also passes an ordination that allows Christians to marry their slaves. Or at least, he, he agrees to see these marriages as valid and accepted in the church. Both for men who married their slaves and women who married the slaves. And this is interesting because the latter, women marrying their slaves, was definitely not at all accepted or valid in the eyes of Roman law. This is one of these times where we can actually see where the church is making a distinction between Roman law and church law, and now they have church law superseding Roman law in one of these places. And this is only the first inkling we have of this, but this idea of ecclesiastical law and temporal law being different or being at odds with one another is going to happen for the next 2,000 years. Like, we're, we're a thousand years away from Unum Sanctum at this point. It's worth noting this is one of the first places where we see a distinction being made very early in the church. It's a big deal. Though we have Calixtus at this point pursuing a pretty clear policy of acceptance and reconciliation, we need to make clear, because his critics will not, that he is not a completely lax ruler. He is not letting everyone run ramshod over the church, even if Again, that's what we're going to hear. Ironically, he's actually taking a stance on debates that Zephyrinus wouldn't touch, like between Hippolytus's view of the divine logos, son and the father as the plurality of God, and the modalists who were all God is all oneness. He actually sides with Hippolytus, and he expels one of the modalists who had opened a religious school. He expels Sibelius. It's not a total free-for-all. He doesn't disagree with Hippolytus on everything. He's actually siding with him on this. But, again, the modalism versus logos, Trinitarianism, and, uh, we're going to come back to that for so long, I'm not even going to spend any time on it right now. Not today. No, today is for fun stories. So, you can be sure that Calixtus's policies and new ordinations set Hippolytus into an absolute frenzy of criticism. And before we do that, and get into all that, again, Hippolytus is not Calixtus's only hater. He had also gotten on the wrong side of Tertullian, who we just quoted, and he was our Montanist heretic source, so he's getting back in the game, and he's going to take aim at the Pope first. He is very much like Hippolytus, in that he is a rigorist, so he's a very, very rigid moralist who wanted to uphold the strictest teachings of the church, who thought that there were just some sins and some heresies that absolutely, 100%, should not receive absolution. I could point out the irony that they are all considered heretics now, but... yeah. He was not, just like Hippolytus, he was not on board with Calixtus offering communion to people who had committed murder or adultery, and thought that this would bring hypocrites into the church and weaken it overall, which was not a stance that they felt the church should have in the wake of ongoing on-and-off persecutions and people leaving for schisms. We have Tertullian's response to Calixtus's edict, and he says, as to thy decision, I ask, whence dost thou usurp this right of the church? If it is because the Lord said to Peter, Upon this rock I will build my church, I will give thee, I will give thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, or whatsoever thou bindest or loosest on earth shall be bound or loosed in heaven, who art thou that destroyest and alterest the manifest intention of the Lord, who conferred on Peter this personally and alone? He doesn't think Calixtus has any right whatsoever to adjust what sins are worthy of absolution and what course of action should be taken. 
both Tertullian and Hippolytus accused Calixtus of sympathizing with heretics and sinners, as if this was somehow a bad and unchristian thing to do. Hippolytus is also very mad that the heretics were being brought back into the church and that they weren't subject to penance of the public and humiliating kind. You might remember we talked a little bit about public penance in Soter's episode, episode 14, but Hippolytus thinks that if you are going to be welcome back, you should have to suffer for it. He is also super, super salty that Calixtus has accepted people back to the church that Hippolytus had excommunicated from his religious school. It's a double slap in the face. And for this, he calls Calixtus a heretic and accuses him of being a modalist, just like he had with Zephyrinus, even though Calixtus had expelled and excommunicated the modalists. He's just mad that the people that Hippolytus are angry about are going back to Calixtus. Now, the marriage edict that we discussed really upset both Tertullian and Hippolytus. Tertullian railed off about how this was a slippery slope into bad marriage practices, and he pointed to the example of some bishops that had been married more than once. Remember, there is no vow of celibacy yet. And he says it was Calixtus who allowed bishops to remarry and Christians to marry slaves, which was a direct contravention of what was stated in St. Paul's letters. So how dare he? But this is Tertullian, and Hippolytus is going to go one bigger. He is utterly and totally scandalized by the fact that Calixtus would allow for adultery and slave marriage. So he goes and pulls a massive straw man and says that Calixtus must also be promoting the use of contraception and <gasps> abortion. Oh yeah, because those are totally exactly the same thing. They are exactly the same thing. It's obvious that someone who is absolving people of extramarital sex sins are definitely promoting it, and the grave sin of abortion and contraception just must follow. Clutch your pearls. I 100% thought you were going to say, and then he was like, people are going to marry beasts now? That's the next argument to follow, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we actually have a quote of just how scandalized Hippolytus is. This is what he thinks. He says, Whence women... Reputed believers began to resort to drugs for producing sterility and to gird themselves round their belly so to expel what was being conceived on account of their not wishing to have a child either by a slave or by any paltry fellow for the sake of their family and excessive wealth. Behold, into how great impiety that lawless one has proceeded by inculcating adultery and murder at the same time. And withal, after such audacious acts, lost all to shame, an attempt to call themselves a Catholic church. He's real man. He, he sounded like he got scorned by some ladies, too. He probably did. They don't want to have the paltry men. The paltry men's children. Are you a paltry man, sir? You sound like you're a paltry man. He, he's an uptight moralist. I mean, who who is getting sexy for the uptight moralists? Nobody. Someone. <laughs> <laughs> for a second, we need to consider how likely is it that Calixtus had anything to do with contraception and abortion? Well, it has always been a fact that people will seek out contraception or abortion and definitely were at this time, just like in any other time period in history, but there is zero evidence to prove that Calixtus saw this in a positive light, or promoted it, or anything. Mentioned it at all. The closest we can say is that maybe he forgave the people who confessed to it, but that's his thing, so Hippolytus is just spitballing here. Maybe he forgave somebody who was like, I had an abortion. And he's like, okay, thanks for telling me. Yeah, and then Hippolytus is like clutching his pearls. Won't somebody think of the children? I mean, technically someone did think of the children. In a way. In a roundabout way. But we, we've had our fun. There will be a lot more to say about Hippolytus, and we're going to save that for his own episode in the future. We're not going to delve any deeper into him today. We know uh, how he feels about Calixtus's papacy. Real bad. And he's going to last longer than Calixtus's papacy, so he will pop up into our story again, but 
we need to kind of wrap up the rest of his papacy and kind of deal with that. Let's wrap up Calixtus with a couple of his other contributions, because he has some. He did more. He built a church. He built the Basilica di Santa Maria in Trastevere. Is it still standing? It is, and I went there. I took some pictures for you, so I will post them at some point with this episode. We went there. It was really cool. There was actually a mass happening while we were there, so we just kind of like peeked around really quietly. Maybe in our Discord, because we're just putting the weirdest stuff in our Discord. <laughs> our Discord is fantastic. If you're not joining us there, what are you doing? Right now it's just us and Richard, and then whenever we posted some fan fiction about Roy Orbison. Oh god, we did. I forgot that already. There's two other people that are supposed to be in that group, so if you're listening and you're having trouble getting on there, let us know so we can help you out. We'll definitely help. Yeah. This church, this Basilica di Santa Maria in Trastevere, there is a section in the Historia Augusta, which we talked about last week, the not-at-all-accurate historical source, that tells us that the site that this church stands on was previously a tavern, frequented mostly by retired soldiers, so that when people came there to preach, there would often be conflict between tavern patrons and Christians. Fight me! This is a spot they both wanted for some reason. I mean, it's, it's a pretty spot in a little square. It's quite nice. Um, but they would fight over it, and so to settle the argument, Emperor Alexander Severus, whose mother, Julia Bamia, was allegedly a Christian, and actually had Origen tutor her son in Christian theology, he officially gives the land to the church. And what we know about this is the Liber Pontificalis tells us that Emperor Severus said, I prefer that it should belong to those who honor God, whatever be their form of worship. That's a thing. But again, the sources that we have to back this up are the Historia Augusta and the Liber Pontificalis. And they're in that huge circle jerk. They are the drunk men at the pub, seriously. <laughs> Either way, the church is still there until the present day. It's been rebuilt and, and restored, and it's kind of cool because if you go there in the little... Uh, alcove out front where you're covered but you're not quite in the church they actually have like embedded in the walls stones from the original that are still inscribed with like ancient roman text so it's really really neat and we have one more contribution from the liber pontificalis we are told that he instituted a fast from corn wine and oil upon the sabbath day thrice in the year according to the word of the prophet of a fourth, of a seventh, and of a tenth. I don't know what that last bit means. What? What? According to the word of the prophet of a fourth, of a seventh, and of a tenth. I don't know. Mm-mm. Also, corn? Corn, wine, and oil. It's weird. That's some weird choices. And it just doesn't make a lot of sense for the time. Again, we're talking about, you know, Christians eating whatever they can get their hands on, so... And then also, how do you drink Jesus if you're not allowed to? That's a good point, too. There was literally nothing I could look up that explained this in any more detail. It's just kind of chucked in there, and most of the sources just ignore it. The 4th, 7th, and 10th? That None of that helped. No. I don't know what any... If some, if some seminarian wants to tell us what the f*** that means, please... You could ask Deacon Dad. Oh, God. <laughs> He's going to get so annoyed with us. He, he, I'm sure he'll just see it as some sort of evangelical calling. So to wrap this up, he also had five December ordinations for a total of 16 priests, four deacons, and eight bishops. Woohoo. Then he's going to die. And he will die again before there's any real resolution to the Hippolytus situation. Do you want to take a guess at how Calixtus died? Let's go with noms. <laughs> it's a good guess, because he was in fact martyred. And this one we can actually verify, at least in part, because he is the earliest pope to actually appear on the Deposito Martyrium slash Liberian catalog as a martyr. 
This is one that people don't argue about. He actually may have been the first pope ever to appear in a martyrology. Popes who come before him will be added later, but not before the 4th century, so this this is a big one. I have a story now to tell you, just like everything else with... Uh... A death story? Awesome. So, in either 222 or 223, there is a popular uprising in the Trastevere area of Rome, where Calixtus lives, that leads to what many popular uprisings of the time do, persecuting Christians for being all of the problems in society. One thing leads to another, and then the Pope is dead. The traditional story of how he died can't be actually verified in any way. We can confirm that he was martyred in this popular uprising, but there is this one story that gets repeated in a number of places, so I'm just going to tell it to you as if it were true, because it's it just fits Calixtus's life. In this version of his death, he was pulled out of his house, thrown down a well, and then stoned just in case the fall didn't kill him. Someone just started throwing chucking rocks down the well? God, that's rude. That wasn't a choice. I didn't know that was a choice. This is a new choice. We haven't had somebody like this. Then, apparently, a priest called Asterius went back to retrieve the body of Calixtus later that night and bury him in secret but he was either caught or tracked down for doing this by a prefect of the city called Alexander. So he gets thrown off of a bridge into the Tiber. Oh, okay. Yep, not so good. Poor man, just trying to, you know, give the Pope a resting place, has now died for it. And again, <laughs> we can accept that sources disagree about this story being true. That's fine. It's a good yarn. It is a good story, and, you know, considering everything that happened in his life, doesn't that just seem like the way he would go? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Again, we are in the time of Emperor Alexander Severus, but popular uprisings have always been different than government-sanctioned persecutions, so I'm convinced that this story makes a lot of sense. Either way, however he died, he ends up being buried at the Cemetery of Calipodius at the third milestone. He is not buried in his own cemetery. And if we believe this story about his death, that's probably because it would have been way too conspicuous for a nighttime burial in the big Christian place of burial at the time. That probably would have given them away. In the 9th century, his relics will be moved to the Santa Maria Church in Trastevere, which is the one he built. There's that. It's where he is now. So, that's Calixtus. We have gone on a journey, and now we need to rate him. Papatum infallium. This is a debate, because what side of the debate do we fall on? Do we see him in a favorable light, or do we side with Hippolytus and Tertullian? I'm going to give you both sides, and then you can tell me what your score is. Good points. He helps expand Christianity a lot at this point, and he reunifies a large segment of the Christian population by readmitting people to the church, accepting people who had left to schism and heresy, he's attracting people through more tolerance and forgiveness of sins that were seen as unforgivable or not worthy of absolution, more people in the church, less people cast out of it. The Catholics Encyclopedia says if we knew more of St. Callistics from Catholic sources, he would probably appear as one of the greatest of the popes. High praise. He built the first version of a church that's still standing today and responsible for the cemetery that would be the burial spot for all of the Christians for the next 200 years. Still there today, still leaving its mark. Bad points. He is responsible for the schism of Hippolytus, if you want to look at it that way. First anti-pope situation. He wasn't able to bring them back to the church after they left. They didn't believe that he had the rightful authority, so that's not good. He has really lax policies. He's bringing in heretics. He's bringing in unrepentance. He's allowing Christian people to marry their slaves. Like, good or bad? How do you want to rate him? Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, Can I give him... I, I would really like to give him an eight. That's exactly what I was thinking. I'm going to give him an eight, too, because I don't know how we can move past Calixtus without acknowledging that 
admitting people into the church that are sinners, who are confessing their sin, is the Catholic thing to do. So he is setting a huge precedent here. I actually think I'm going to bump it up to a nine because there's not many things I can think of that are going to be on this level, especially setting the very first precedent. Let's get crazy and give him a 10. You're going to give him a 10? Yeah. Okay, then I'm definitely going to stick with a 9, and that will give him a 19 for Papatum and Valium. Fructus Prohibitum? Regardless of how you feel about this situation, there are some things that we need to give him some scandal points for. He fought in a synagogue, regardless of the reason. He's losing money, getting arrested, skipping town. There is no good way around the whole masters marrying their slave things. Now we had a quote, a nice quote about him. Now we have Hippolytus, who says that Calixtus was a man cunning in wickedness and subtle where deceit was concerned, who was impelled by restless ambition to mount the Episcopal throne. He's forgiving adultery and murder, and maybe supporting contraception and abortion. Maybe. There's even a a article I read called Pope St. Calixtus, Laxity, Contraception, and Abortion in AD 217 by Taylor Marshall, who, interestingly enough, and this is bolded in his article, says, All Catholics today would grant that Pope Calixtus made the correct move by allowing for easy absolution of grave sins before the time of death. Did this new laxity come with a price? Yes. Did Catholic women try to get away with contraception and abortion? Yes. Does that still happen today? Absolutely. But he did do some scandalous things, so we gotta give him some points in this category. And I want to give him, like, a ton of points. Okay. Like, maybe like a two or a three, nothing too high. Which one do you want to give him? Mm, let's let's go with a two. I'm gonna give him a four. Because of the, the synagogue fighting, because of the skipping town... Because of the losing of the money, and because of masters marrying their slaves. He's going to get a four from me. So that will give him a total of six. Seculari impactum. The basilica he built is still standing. The cemetery is still there, even though the interred occupants have been moved. It's, it's a historic landmark. Uh, he accepted way more people who would otherwise be considered secular in the church having a secular impact and at the time of his papacy the emperor of rome is being educated in christian theology and giving the church land so relations are good and the last one is i one of the articles that i read for this was called the amazing story of badass pope calixtus the first and i think he gets a point just for that so what do you want to give him honestly i want to give him like a five all right i think that's fair i i'm gonna match you because one for the badass, two, f well, one for the church, and a couple for the cemetery, because I've been there, and it was really cool, and it definitely left an impact on me. Gives him a 10 for secular impactum. He's doing good. Well, you kind of figured he would. I knew he would. Fossium Sanctus. Okay, so, I have some pictures for you. Now, I'm going to send you two at once because they're very much the same. And the one thing, I have I have five pictures to show you today. And two of them <laughs> look very much the same. And in the other ones, it's definitely clear that they're going off of some distinctive facial features. All right. This man must have had a look, is what I'm getting at. I'm going to send you these two first because they are clearly variations of the same one and they're the ones that we usually judge on. Oh, that's just exactly the same face. Yes, it's two different pictures, but they're clearly model off of one another. And this is the one we usually use. He looks real sad. No, he just looks tired. He has seen some things. <laughs> well, he definitely has seen some things. He's had a time. <laughs> I feel like he's disappointed that all of the sources that are out about him are just really, really crappy, salty sources. What do you think he deserves for this? I'm only gonna give him, like, a four. Okay. I was gonna give him a three. Yeah, I was considering a, a three, but I'll give him a four. 
None of his facial parts are wrong and bad. It's very, very traditional. He doesn't have a very, very distinctive look. He's got the bunny poof. It's very small. It's a it's a bitty one. Yep, it's a bitty bunny poof. He's got a tiny little fork in his beard. He's got butt beard. Yeah, it's just not anything major. Gives him a 1.75. Now we're going to look at these other three because these are not the same picture, but man, the facial traits on this one indicate that, yeah, he must have had a look. <laughs> look at that. <laughs> he looks like a Disney villain now. <laughs> I know, right? He's got like really, really sallow cheeks that make him look. I know it's his eye. His eyes are just, I don't know. He must have had like some hella sunken eyes. Because look, they're just, the, every single one is like, how sunk and can I get these eyes? But the shadows on his cheeks too. Just draw a straight skull next time, guys. Don't even add eyeballs in, just circles. Well, I mean, maybe they were influenced by Hippolytus and they wanted to portray him as evil as possible. They might have been. So that's a thing. So that is him. He's sticking with his 1.75. This weird one long mustache. Yep. Yeah, isn't it weird? It's just kind of weird. Tempus Pontificus. Julius Africanus and Eusebius weigh in on this, so it was either... 218 to 222, or 217 to 222, so we're gonna go with 218 to 222, giving him four years, which gives him a score of one. That's not very long. It's not. We had that one guy who had, like, 15 years and did shit, so... That was his successor. <laughs> yeah, I guess that makes up for it. Exactly. All right, everybody, it's the cannon bonus round! Do -do 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 -do. He is a saint. No surprise there. Feast day is October 14th. He is actually the patron saint of something. Is it a weird long mustache? It's one that makes, once I say it, you're going to be like, oh yeah, of course. He is the patron saint of cemetery workers. All right, yeah, that makes sense. Now, I want to clarify on this because there is also a Saint Anthony of Egypt who is considered the patron saint of grave diggers slash graveyards slash all things cemeteries. So there is an overlap, but it is recorded in more than one place that Calixtus is still the patron saint of cemetery workers, and it's fitting for him. Someone's gotta mow the yard. Yeah, exactly. They don't have to dig the graves, they have to, like, mow and maintain and clean. And paint the, the marble tombs and all of that. Like, there's other stuff to do in a cemetery besides dig graves. Yeah, he's their patron saint. Which is great, because that makes him a, a patron saint of something more important than his successor, who is now the patron saint of victims of libels. And his successor, Victor, is the patron saint of big mouth billy basses, we must never forget. So I think it's nice to see an official one. We've actually got a, a couple official ones coming up, if you can believe it. Oh, nice. We don't have to just make up something. That's correct. His total score now is a little bit surprising. He is a 38.75. Does that put him in second place or third? That puts him in third place after Clement, Peter and Clement. This brings us to our final question, and we actually have something to talk about here. Is he popey enough? Is he pizzazzy enough? And is he worthy of a papal bull? Yeah, I would give it to him. I 100% want to give it to him. So, unanimously, Calixtus, man, you have stood the test of time. Clearly, you come through better than your haters and your critics. I mean, maybe he himself hasn't stood the test of time, but definitely the things that he put around have stayed. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is this is a good shot for him. That's pretty good. I thought he would, I thought he was definitely going to edge out Clement there. I think he's just as much fun, though. This is one that I was really excited to do. So I'm, I'm very happy that he has won his Papal Bowl. Hooray. Hooray. And that means that it's Papal Indulgence time, because we have another Papal Indulgence to grant to our newest Patreon supporter, Michael Beach. 
Thank you, Michael. Ego te absolvo. And then we need to do our regular thank you. So thank you, as always, to Totalis Rankium and Rex Factor for being our excellent supporters and inspirations and mentors. And we also want to thank Sapiens History because you're wrapping us on Reddit, which is super awesome. Thank you so very much for that. I, I don't Reddit. I don't know. Reddit is a big, scary place, and I don't like it. But I love that we're there. So thank you for putting us there. I just, I think the thing about it that scares me the most is that I know that if I start interacting with Reddit, I will never leave. That's true about you. You won't. (laughs) I am just worried that I would get tired of it in five minutes and miss all of the good stuff, so... And then you wouldn't have any Pontifax episodes because I would be commenting on things on reddit so thank you sapiens history for letting me keep my best friend to do podcasts with and then we thank all of you so with that we can be found on most major podcatching platforms including spotify you can find us on twitter and facebook as pontifax pod feel free to message us we usually always respond if you want to send us a more long-form message request or otherwise get a hold of us our email is pontifaxpod at gmail.com For our bonus episodes and exclusive content, head over to our Patreon page and donate. That's patreon.com forward slash pontifaxpod. If you feel the need to buy us a tea, because we're not really coffee drinkers, but we do love tea, you can throw us a few bucks in our PayPal account at paypal.me forward slash pontifaxpod. As always, please subscribe and rate and review on iTunes or whatever you use. It really helps us get recommended to other people and allows more people to find us. Thank you, and goodbye. Bye. Bye.